right, let me pray once more as we look at the word together. Father, we approach sacred history written by those that were so close to those that were actually there. We just thank you for the truth of how the gospel spread throughout the world and what we can learn about you through it. So we ask you to help us to concentrate and give our hearts and minds to the word of God this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're in Acts 18. We're leaving behind Athens and we're following Paul to a place where he will have a very significant ministry. Paul does not usually stay in one place very long. He usually uh, just gets a work started, he gets a church planted, he often leaves one of his team members there wherever he was to help the new believers kind of mature in their faith and then he moves on to the next town. That's been the pattern, uh, never really staying in one place more than just a month or two. That is about to change. Now he's going to Corinth, which we could properly call Sin City. (laughs) Um, But Acts 18 has another thread kind of running through the story of Paul coming to Corinth. Woven into this story of the gospel coming to this wicked town is the story of God's care for his servants. We've already mentioned that this morning, but um, that's so important. I have news for you. Even an A-type personality like Paul can go through hard times and need encouragement. He struggles. Have you ever gone through hard times? Anybody here? <laughs> yeah, sometimes we just need encouragement, right? We, we, we find out in the middle of Acts chapter 18, we'll get there, but that Paul is actually struggling with fear. He's struggling with fear. So he's human. He's not Superman evangelist after all. He's a human being like we are. And I'm not sure Paul is even totally consciously aware of that fear at this point when he's sort of traveling there. But the Lord knows all about it. So if you, if you think about all that Paul has been through, I mean, it's been a pretty hard slog as a missionary for him. Badly beaten several times. Once stoned, right? Rocks, you know, stone. Prison. Put in, been put in stocks. His body aches. He's got wounds that probably will never be completely healed. Because of his gospel work, mobs and riots have swirled around him where he was at the center of what was going on. And you know, it's easy to read that, but it's really a terrifying thing to be surrounded by a mob or carried off by a group of people and that wants your death. I mean, that's psychologically, that, that's difficult to deal with. It's happened more than once to him. And I think what's make it more, making it more difficult now is that he's alone. And that hasn't been the case for most of his work in the mission field. He brings a team around him, guys he can rely on, guys that can bolster him, that he can bolster them. All of that's been going on. Paul went to Athens alone after they had to like, get him out of Berea for his own safety. Remember, he traveled down to uh, Athens and he was there alone. When he got to Athens, he sent for Silas and Timothy, but they have not arrived yet before he leaves Athens and goes on to Corinth. So we aren't even told why he moved on from Athens, but for some reason he felt compelled to go to Corinth. Um, uh, there's things we aren't told here, but, um, but before they showed up, he, he left and uh, went on to Corinth, probably leaving word with the believers there to send those guys on to, to Corinth. But all of that hostility and physical pain and danger, it just wears on a person. It's like soldiers, you know, that go through trauma and have post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, and it can happen to anybody that's been through a lot of suffering and violence. 
And I think without any personal support, those experiences are starting to really catch up with him. He doesn't have his friends around him. God knows, though. God knows all about what he's feeling and what he's going through on the inside. So chapter 18 is really how God is caring for Paul as well as evangelizing Sin City. So let's kind of look for those threads there. I'll be pointing them out as we move along. Even if Paul personally hasn't addressed his fear yet, God knows about it and God sees it. So God starts providing for him right away. So Acts chapter 18, um, verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So what's the first thing the Lord does for Paul? He brings friends to him, right? He makes new friends, friends that weren't part of his team, friends he didn't know existed. He meets these people in Corinth. So why would Luke mention that? You know, unless it was significant. For, well, for one thing, this couple is going to be very significant because they came, became very important in Paul's life. And, but it shows one way that the Father cares for us. He brings people into our life that w- can bolster us, that can strengthen us, that can be friends to us, that can hear our troubles and pray with us. So this couple were kicked out of Rome for being Jewish. Um, we've talked before about how the Emperor Claudius booted all the Jews out of Rome in AD 49. And all we really know about that expulsion is, is what Suetonius, who is a Roman historian, tells us about it. And he just has this line. He says, quote, because the Jews at Rome were caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. So we have this sentence. Crestus. That sounds pretty close to Christus right? And we know a church was founded in Rome before the apostles got there. There was already a church existing, so it could have been existing at that time. And we know that in many, many cities, we've already seen it throughout the book of Acts, Christianity brought very harsh reprisals and sometimes riots from the Jewish community. So it's possible that the Jews of Rome, upset over Christian attempts to win converts from the synagogues there made quite a howl and a big disturbance and Romans hate that. So Claudius eventually just got fed up with them and banished them from Rome. He did banish them for some reason. And whoever Crestus is, that's Suetonius might have just got a letter wrong or or a vowel wrong. It could be based on Christ, the idea of Christianity there. So we don't know that for sure, but that's possible. So the Jews who were Christians would have been expelled as well. You say, yeah, but uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they're, they're Christians. Yeah, but they're Jewish. And at that time, the Romans just saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism. They didn't distinguish it as some kind of separate faith or anything like that. So look, these Jews are squabbling again, and I'm tired of it. So he kicks them all out of Rome. Did, not, did God know that all of that was going to happen? And did he bring Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth intentionally? Yeah. See, that probably, probably be a pretty horrible experience getting kicked out of their home where their business was and having to leave everything behind and go start in a new place. But God wanted them to be friends with Paul. So, you know, when things happen, God's at work. And if you're his, he's caring for you or for somebody else through you all along. So always keep that in mind. Okay, what do you got for me? What have you got for me? This isn't pleasant, but you must have something for me here. 
think about those kinds of things. Well, the Lord used Claudius to place this Christian couple in Corinth. And by strange coincidence, a very strange coincidence, they just happened to be tent makers by trade. Now, every Pharisee had a trade. That, they, they, didn't, they weren't paid for being Pharisees. They had a job. And Paul was a tent maker. And just so happens this couple that shows up from Rome into Corinth, they're also tent makers. So they say, hey, come and stay in our home. And we'll work together. And so that's what Paul did. He worked with Aquila making, making tents, sewing tents together and things like that. So he makes these new friends. It's beautiful. Paul's not alone in Corinth. Before his team even arrives, God brings him comfort and solace through these Christian friends that he has. There's a little takeaway from this story. If you don't have Christian friends, you should try to make some. Start making some. Churches are good places to find them. I would encourage you to cultivate Christian relationships, Christian friendships in your life. Following Jesus is not a solo sport. It really isn't. It's meant to be done together. That's why churches exist for believers to encourage and support and strengthen each other. That's what it's all about. I would be a completely different person if I didn't have people that I knew have my back all the time just as friends. Even when I'm a jerk, they have my back. So um, that doesn't mean they tell me I'm wonderful when I'm a jerk. It means they're willing to tell me I'm a jerk. So uh, people who can tell me the truth when I need correction and people who can comfort me when I'm afflicted, that's, that's what friends are. You do that for them, they do that for you. We are increasingly becoming a society, a society of people walled off from each other because they're glued to screens. And don't let that happen to you. Build friendships, spend time with human beings people that know the Lord. It's so easy to drift into isolation, but don't let that happen. Cultivate your friendships. I know everybody has different kinds of ways they do friendship, and they process it in different ways, and they interact in different ways, but you need Christian friends at some meaningful level in your life. So try to do that. It's good for you. It's good for them. See, Aquila and Priscilla couldn't possibly have known they were going to be ministering to an apostle of Jesus Christ, but they were. They did. You might be somebody's Aquila or Priscilla. So God provides Paul with this wonderful couple and it seems that they were friends for life. In fact, um, when Paul goes to Ephesus after this, they go there too at some point. And Paul writes back to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You know how at the end of books he often greets everybody? 1 Corinthians 16, 19, it says, the churches of Asia greet you. So he's writing to Corinth from Ephesus and he says, Aquila and Prisca greet you, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So they've got a house church in Ephesus when Paul is there. So they're following him. That's how close this friendship was. They stuck with him and they went on to, to be other places with him. It also seems like at some point they made it back to Rome because after Claudius passed away, those laws would have been kind of over with, and they made it back to Rome because in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, where he has another long list of greetings and all of that kind of thing, um, guess who's first on the list? Romans 16 um, begins this way. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. We don't know that story. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So when they moved to Rome, they hosted a, a church in their home as well. These are great people. These are committed, dedicated Christian people. 
So this couple did Paul some wonderful service. We don't know how, but they risked their lives for him. They also hosted churches in their home everywhere they went. They're mentioned six times in scripture. Um, and four of those times, Prisca, that's, that's the actual name. Priscilla is actually a, it's a longer name, but that's the pet name. That's, that would be like your short name. But um, she's mentioned four times out of the six first before Aquila. And we don't know why. People love to speculate about why that is because it's a little bit unusual. But um, some people suspect she might have been an upper class person and that's why it appears that way. Uh, it, you know, but in some couples, it's kind of the wife that shines. She kind of is the one and the husband's like really happy to let her shine and just kind of do his own thing and work in the garage or whatever makes him happy, you know. You shine, honey. I'm just going to work quietly. But maybe it's that. I don't know. But the lesson here is cultivate Christian friendships. The Lord knew Paul needed it. If he needed it, you probably need it. And somebody you know probably needs it. So go that way. Okay, let's talk about Corinth a little bit. We're going to show some pictures here. Um, we've got a map up. I can't really see these things very well. Okay. Can you see Corinth on there? It's in big red letters. So Corinth is in a very strategic place. Does that fit Paul's strategy that we've been studying all through the book of Acts here? What is it? What's the two words? Cities and synagogues, right? Well, Corinth couldn't be a more important strategically placed city, and it has a very large synagogue here. So it's called the Bridge of Greece, and you can tell why it would be called that because you can see that Greece is kind of divided into two big parts, and Corinth sits, there's this isthmus there, and there's this, the giant thing below is called the Peloponnese, and Corinth sits on the connection between Greece and the southern part of Greece, which is called the Peloponnese, Peloponnesian um, place there. You know the Peloponnesian War? Ever heard of that? That's when Athens fought Sparta, and Sparta was in the Peloponnese here, and Athens is over there, so they were vastly at war with each other. Sparta had the great army, and Athens had the great navy. And look where Corinth sits. So Corinth was a very powerful, rich city during that time, and so guess they had this kind of crucial place, because the Spartans wanted to attack Athens, they had to go through that isthmus to get over there. And then the Athenians would just run all around the Peloponnese and land in places and do raids and stuff with their ships. But, um, but it's an extremely important. So they, they played Corinth off of each other, you know, offering them things or intimidating them or whatever to try to get them on their side. Very strategically placed um, there at that isthmus. So all north and south trade would go from the north to the south would go through that isthmus where Corinth dominated that spot. And almost all east-west trade passed through Corinth as well. In fact, going around the, the Peloponnese, like if you're starting over here and you're going around this, it's extremely treacherous for ancient boats to do that and very time-consuming. So ships that were coming from the east going west, like towards Rome, they would just stop there at Corinth, unload everything, go across this four miles of the isthmus there, and then load up again on another boat and keep going. It was way easier and cheaper to do that than to try to fight your way around um, Melia. They call the Straits of Melia down there below there. So um, that was really kind of a critical thing. The, in fact, the Greeks had two sayings that we know came down. Let him who sails around Melia forget his home. <laughs> That's because it was that dangerous. And the other one was let him who sails around Melia first make his will. <laughs> 
So it was much easier to do that. They actually did try to build a canal across the isthmus in ancient times, but the soils didn't allow them to do that with the technology that they had. There is one there now. It's this really deep cut canal that connects there, so ships go through there now. It's a pretty cool place. They got some really neat stuff going on over there. But um, with all that trade and shipping, what kind of a place do you think Corinth was? Absolutely. It was rich. It was powerful. It was culturally significant. In fact, after the Olympic Games, the most famous games, like you know, every four years you have the Olympics, well in between times there was the Isthmian Games. So on the Isthmus there, they would have a very prominent games too. That was the second most important place to do your athletic stuff. So they were a very powerful city-state until the Romans came. That whole area um, is kind of called Achaia, around Corinth there, and the Achaean League tried to fight the Romans and take them on. And the Romans decided to make an example of Corinth, so they completely destroyed it. They killed everyone that lived there or sold them into slavery, every single person. And they just destroyed the entire city. And it laid like that for a hundred years. So 146 BC it was completely destroyed. And then a guy came along later that said, you know, Corinth really should be rebuilt. Let's rebuild it as a Roman colony. And his name was, what was his name? Julius Caesar. That was, that was it. That was it. Yeah, that Julius Caesar had it rebuilt there. So um, let's go to the next picture there. So if you go to Corinth today, this is my picture. Um, that Temple of Apollo is the only thing left standing from the Greek era after the Romans destroyed Corinth. That's, that's it. Everything else there is Roman. Roman ruins now. Go to the next slide. I found this really cute girl there. <laughs> and I just asked her to pose in front of the, the, the Greek thing. I think she's got the kids, so she'd be mad if I posted a picture of her, but I'll do it today. So um, anyway, I ended up marrying that girl. So... So Corinth, being a, a sea town with lots of sailors running around it, what kind of moral environment do you think <laughs> it, it was? Well, that's why we call it Sin City. That's one reason. I mean, it was famous. It was famous already even without sailors, but with sailors, Corinth was just famous for its vices. It was a very depraved place. In fact, there's a verb in Greek. In fact, you have to really practice saying it because it's such a long word. Corinthiazithai. It's a, it's a verb that was named with the Corinth, Corinthians, and it means to live like a Corinthian. And that means to be the most debauched human being around. <laughs> that was actually a phrase around the, the Greco-Roman world. Oh, there's a Corinthian guy. In fact, Greek plays always had the comedic Corinthian character, and he was always a drunkard. So that's their reputation, great reputation, right? So towering over Corinth is this huge rock called the Acrocorinth. You can flip the next picture there for that one too. So way up at the top, so I'm, this picture is being taken from down there where the main city is and way up there, you can actually see walls up there. That's not from the Greek or Roman period. Those are later Byzantine type walls. They're a ruin now too. But way up there, there were two things in Paul's day. One was a Roman fortress, so if the city was ever attacked, you could withdraw up there and fight people off for a very long time. And the other thing was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Now Aphrodite, what does that sound like? Aphrodisiac, what does that sound like? Well, don't even worry about that, but it's Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sensuality and fertility and all of those kind of things. 
In the first century, at any given time, 1,000 temple prostitutes worked out of the Acre Corinth, out of that temple up there on the top of the mountain. So people would worship through prostitution. And it was probably another version of sex trafficking to get girls to do that. But that's why you have so many references to fornication and harlotry in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because that culture was so depraved. I mean, the Greek culture was depraved anyway, but Corinth to them was depraved. So that's how far down it was. So Paul comes to town. He makes these wonderful new friends from Rome for fellowship, and he works with them on tent making. Now, Paul is not just making tents in Corinth. He's at the synagogue. And there was a big synagogue there. Let's go to picture five. And this is... This is one of the few remaining bits that they found from a synagogue from ancient Corinth. This one's a little bit after Paul's time, though, probably more like 4th century or something. But you can see the menorahs there. So that has survived as part of the ruins there, and that's in the museum there. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And let's go ahead and show the last picture because we'll talk about this later. So we've talked about lictors before. Those are the guys that have these bundles of sticks with the axe head in them. Those are the people that beat you when, they, when the leader of the community tells them to. So they're the enforcer guys. They're going to come up a little later. So we can, we can, uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Just wanted to get that one out of the way. So there was a synagogue in Corinth, and it was a very large synagogue. So when his team finally arrives, he stops making tents, and he starts to preach every day. So it's... It's certain that Silas and Timothy brought large amounts of funding from the churches farther north that they had been at, and that perfectly matches what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.9 when comparing himself to the false apostles, the super apostles that were causing such a problem. He says, when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supported my need. That's exactly what he's talking about, this incident, when those guys show up. So the churches up there collected money for Paul to live on and the team to live on, and they brought it down. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So you know Paul had a rule that he would not take money from the people he was ministering to at the time. So um, why would he do that? So people couldn't say he's in it for the money, right? I mean, that would be exactly why. And so uh, he thought it was appropriate to be, have the ministry funded, but he never wanted anybody to be able to say, they just want my money. That's actually why we don't take up a collection here during the service, because we don't want people to say that. You know, that you bring an unbelieving friend and he thinks, well, that's all they care about is my money. So we never ask for that, you know. So... Um, Anyway, he starts preaching full-time, verse 4. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So that's his normal thing. He gets to a strategic city, he goes in the synagogue. He'd already been doing that on the Sabbath day, but now he's going to do it full-time. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, we're in verse 5, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now when Paul starts the full court press here. He's like doing it all the time. Uh, he starts to get serious pushback. So, and history actually starts to repeat itself. So the synagogue becomes split and those who reject Jesus start getting pretty agitated and nasty. So in verse 6, Luke puts a lot into this one sentence, but it says, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So the Jews had two expressions. One was blood on your hands, which is an expression we still use today. That's when you're responsible for somebody's death. Um, 
and usually they use it in the context of you didn't warn them. So uh, Ezekiel uses it that way. But there's also an expression, blood on your head, which means you have been warned and that if you fail to take action, it's your fault. It's your fault. So blood on your hands means you're responsible for um, not giving a warning. Blood on your head means you had the warning and you needed to take care of it and you didn't do it. So the, that's what he's saying to them. Ezekiel uses that expression as well. So Paul does that here. And they don't just say they're not interested. No, thank you. We're not interested. It's not that. It's they were blaspheming Jesus. That's that's what causes the sharp reaction from Paul. So he's very firm. He's very direct. Uh, no more so than Jesus was sometimes uh, in dealing with crowds like that. They absolutely have to hear this. Rejecting Christ is rejecting the only Savior that God's ever going to provide. And if you want to play around with that and goof around with that, you can. But you just got to know that that's the only savior he's sending into the world. It's him himself coming into human flesh to die for your sins. So he tells them as clearly and as wholeheartedly as he knew, your blood will be on your own head if you reject the one that God has sent. So if they're cast off by God when they stand before him someday in all their sin without a savior, it'll be on their heads. Now I haven't counted how many times Paul said I will go to the Gentiles in the book of Acts but he has to say it multiple times because these are always a different group of people so he's laying that out there and he says I'm going to go to the Gentiles so he, that seems to be happens every time he gets kicked out of a synagogue but he shakes out his garments it says so um, uh, Jesus told the twelve apostles to do that when they were traveling through saying proclaim the kingdom of God and he said if they, don't, if they receive you great if they don't receive you shake off the dust from your garments and go on to the next town so it's the same idea there we're not going to carry your dust. You're so stubborn. and So he's making a clean break there. That's what's going on. So Paul goes to preach elsewhere. In fact, he goes to the home of a God-fearing Gentile who lives, it turns out, next door to the synagogue. Now this is not an in-your-face move. It just so happens that the guy, it really is it. Titius Justice offered his house. Verse 7, they left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, very Roman name, a worshiper of God. So he's a Gentile that worships the true God in the synagogue whose house was next to the synagogue. So he probably ended up in the synagogue because he lived right next door. And check it out. And he fell in love with the God of Israel. Now, we've come to expect a good response from the Gentiles that worship the true God. That's pretty much what usually happens. Some Jews believe in these synagogues when Paul goes and preaches, but the, the Gentiles who are worshiping God there, they respond in larger numbers usually, sometimes huge numbers. They seem to find in Jesus everything they love about the God of the Old Testament, plus there's so much more, right? I mean, God is pretty wonderful in the Old Testament, but Jesus is so much more. And because uh, he's God embodied, you're actually living with him and seeing him, and then he gives his life for us. It's just like incredible. So they see the fulfillments of the promises in Christ. They they embrace the new covenant in Christ, and usually, at least, like I said, some Jews believe in Jesus as well. But it isn't often the ruler of the synagogue that converts. And in this case, in Corinth, it was verse eight. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. You can't get a better response than that. So this is really good news. So as wicked as this town in is, Corinth is going to be the place where the gospel is really going to take hold. 
and spread. Not only through the region, but because it's such a center for trade and these ships are constantly going in and out, the gospel is going to follow these sailors through the world. All you have to do is convert a few of them and they're going to take it home. And it's going to be talked about on ships heading all over the Mediterranean world. So it's exciting. But despite all of this success, Paul has fear. And this is where Luke starts to, to bring it up. The splitting of the synagogue too often has led to riots, mob action, beatings, and even a stoning on one occasion. And he doesn't want to go through that again. He just doesn't want to do that again. He's tired. Not all of his wounds from before have healed up. He probably had afflictions all of his life because of his previous experiences. In fact, later in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul reminded them of what it was like when he came to town. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Those are his words about himself. So that's how he describes it. He was committed to the work, to the simple gospel, but he was afraid. He, he was weak. So God does something very special. So we already talked about he brought him friends right at the beginning. But when Paul lays down his head on his pillow one night, he has a vision. So that's verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So he encourages Paul with a special word that it's from God, so he can trust that word. He tells him, you won't be hurt here. What a comfort to a man who is down and trembling, right? Of course, God knows how successful the church work is going to be there. He's already picked people out for salvation, just like Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so God knows the success he's going to have there. God has many people in this city, they just don't know it yet. But they're going to be coming to Jesus. So Paul is briefly, in a very limited sort of way, let in on the divine plan. This is my plan for Corinth. A lot of people are going to come to Jesus here and I'm going to protect you personally from violence here. You're going to be safe here. That's really comforting for a guy that's been through what he's been through. So that's where we are. It's, it, now you've got to remember, he wasn't given that kind of privileged information in other places. It's a rare thing for God to speak to someone like this. But on this day he needed some special encouragement and he got it. So Paul is encouraged with new friends, with results, with a word of protection and the promise of a successful ministry. And then verse 11 says, and he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Eighteen months. For him, that's forever. That is a really long time for an evangelist with itchy feet to stay in one place. And then what happens is really fascinating because the mob is going to be aroused in Corinth against Paul after the promise that God had made to Paul. But it's not going to end the same way this time. So God's going to work through a Roman proconsul, a, a governor named Gallio. 
He was the brother of Seneca. You may have heard that name before, a great Roman statesman and philosopher. By the way, there was a really important inscription found at Delphi, uh, way up north in, in 1909. It was dug up there. And it was for, uh, uh, an inscription uh, from the Emperor Claudius. And it gives the exact time that Gallio, and he says on the inscription, my friend, Gallio, describes the same guy as gives his full name, talks about him being the proconsul in Corinth there. So that would have been late AD 51 to mid AD 52 or so when he was the proconsul there. So for Bible scholars that's huge because it gives us a very specific exact date for Paul being in Corinth and you can kind of date the before and after stuff off of that, that thing pretty well. So it's kind of a famous thing there. Okay, back to our story. Um, verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so Achaia is that, the Roman name for that whole region, the Peloponnese region there. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Oh, no. Oh, Lord. What about your promise? Paul's dragged before the judgment seat again. It's the same old accusation they used in the other cities where they had mob violence against him. Well, now wait now. God made a promise, right? So verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are reasons, if there are questions about words and names in your own law, Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Paul didn't even need to say a word. Starts to open his mouth and Gallio says, Oh, you listen, you Jews. <laughs> Lord, you're fulfilling your promise. So Gallio's decision actually is very important. It protected Christianity in Achaia for years to come. And it's a decision of a proconsul who was also the emperor's friend, so it was a useful tool for protection of Christians in other places, at least for a little while, until Claudius went off the throne in AD 54, and this other guy that was not so nice came up. What was his name? Nero. Yes. Uh, he becomes the emperor. But the story's not done. Verse 17. They all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So there's, it's pretty cryptic here. Luke is real short. Um, but this time the other guy gets the beating. I guess that's the main point of it. And who's beating him? We don't know. Probably the lictors. I showed you a picture of a lictor. So the guys with the bundle of sticks. So the guys that used to beat Paul, they're probably the ones beating um, Sosthenes here. Gallio's enforcer guys. That would certainly be true if he kept provoking Proconsul Gallio. In other words, he kept on and was yelling and going on about that. Beat that guy up. They would have done it. Now, some people think it was just the Greeks in the crowd that did it, but there really is no reason for them to do that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but um, it's possible. But Romans are big on justice, and, and they would not have he would not have allowed, at least if he was still there, Gallio would not have allowed a mob to beat up somebody just like that. They have, he's going to control things, so probably he ordered that beating. And by the way, we don't know if it's the same guy, but it's possible that Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue who tried to have Paul beaten mercilessly, that it's possible that he came to Christ at some point. 
Why would I say that? Well, because the name shows up in one other rather interesting place. So 1 Corinthians, at the very beginning, that, that letter, so Paul went to Ephesus, he wrote back to Corinth, and the very beginning of that letter says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Sometimes Paul includes other people in his little author's greeting there. You know, they, they were smart in the ancient world. They signed their letters at the front so you knew who was reading it. You didn't have to skip down and say, who wrote me this? You know, you got it right there. So um, he says it's from Paul and Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was a fairly common name. So it could be a totally different Sosthenes. Absolutely possible that it is. But it's being written to Corinth, not Ephesus or Galatia or anything. It's just kind of interesting that that name that was associated with Corinth is there. So um, it's possible. It's possible. Coincidence? I like to think it's him. I like to think that Sosthenes, after he got beat up, got ministered to and came to Jesus. Because, you know, um, the other guys, the, the, the Crispus, the former head of the synagogue, would have been friends with him and they probably kept their relationship. Plus the church is meeting next door. Um, the relationships maybe started to happen and maybe Sosthenes came to Christ. If I was writing the movie script, that's what would happen. But we don't know. So, the last sentence, verse 17, is probably just a summary statement. Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So, that means religious squabbles among the Jews, as they would have seen the Christian-Jewish tension there, was not his concern. And that is what this was in his mind, just that. So, it's, he's not worried about it. And that made it safe for the church there. So, Paul stayed for 18 months. Now, just think about it. Who ordained that things would lay out the way they did? God. That's right. Somebody said. Mm, good. Yeah. God had this all planned out. He knew that Paul would be vindicated and that the other guy would get beaten this time and not Paul. He took care of Paul. God ordains whatever comes to pass. You know God loves us. And sometimes we have to suffer. Paul surely did suffer for the gospel quite a bit. But we aren't just thrown out there into the world by God either to, to make it on our own and scrabble about and deal with whatever gets thrown our way. He's in control. He was in control when, God, when, when Paul got beaten with rods. He was in control when Paul got stoned and just got up later and walked away. And he's in control when rob, mo, riots and mobs happen around him. He's in control of all that. And he's in control when Paul needed to be encouraged and protected. And he made sure that happened. God is sovereign over all things. He is a father to us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we can take or not be able to take. He oversees everything we go through. And he's right there. He's trustworthy. So always trust the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care. It doesn't mean ease. There is a lot of trouble in this world, a sea of trouble. But we trust in your sovereignty, your goodness, your fatherly love towards us. Serving you is a great joy. Help us to do it well. And help us to trust you as we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.